Welcome, fellow traveller, to the TED Talks podcast, where we fight bad ideas with good ideas. Join Dr. Stephen Backhouse and friends as we pursue the renewing of our theological, social, and political imagination. Welcome to the tent, Carolyn Mackey. Carolyn is doing a PhD in Kierkegaard herself and the incarnation. So she's using Kierkegaard to look at Kierkegaard's view of the incarnation and what this means for the self. Carolyn is a student at the University of Toronto and she also has some mutual friends in the tent universe. And the reason why I asked Carolyn to come onto this podcast was I saw on some Instagram, I think it was somewhere on social media, you you wrote a, a little thing about how you just published an essay on Kierkegaard, Hannah Arendt, resources for resistance, thinking okay. outside the crowd. And Carolyn, this intrigued me so much that I wrote to you and I said, first of all, please, can you come on the podcast? Second of all, please, can I have a sneaky copy of this essay? <laughs> and you have said yes to both of those things. Carolyn Mackey, mm-hmm. thank you for coming on the tent. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's an honor to be here. Now, please, can you tell us where are you calling in from, Carolyn? So I am currently on Vancouver Island, yeah. BC. Mm-hmm. And did you grow up in BC? Are you a BCite? I am a BCite. Uh, spent quite a few years in Toronto um, with studies and yeah. various things. And I'm still continuing my studies from a distance here in BC. I does the uh, does long distance. I mean, I guess you don't have to physically be in Toronto anymore, do you? The, the no, way the universe works. Yeah, especially now that I'm working on the dissertation stage, I can do most of it by distance. So it's great. How did you get, I, I, I definitely, we're going to be talking a lot about Hannah Arendt and things in the future, but how did you get into Kierkegaard? And you know, Kierkegaard is my, my boyfriend. Yes. I love him. So yeah. uh, how did you, how did you discover Kierkegaard? Um, so I was an undergrad. Uh, I did my undergrad at Prairie Bible College in Prairie Hills, Alberta. And uh, Myron Penner was there at that time who I know you've had on the podcast. Right. The, um, so, end of, what was his book? The End of The of End of Apologetics. apologetics. Yes. Yeah. So I was there right at the same time Myron was. And, you know, he was this kind of cool professor. But he also um, basically just threw Kierkegaard at all of his students in every class that we took. So it was a very kind of immersive experience. So unethical. I know. <laughs> but I also, like... I just grew to love Kierkegaard. He's so great. Um, so that kind of, that started things off. And then I I went to uh, the Kierkegaard Library in St. Olaf College for a little bit one summer and just kind of kept reading him. Yeah, as I continued with my master's, I also, I just worked on Kierkegaard. I, I just couldn't kind of get away from him. What was it about being a, a Bible college, evangelical Bible college student Hmm. I'm going to presume some kind of conservative background, conservative theology, yeah, perhaps conservative yeah. politics. I mean, that's the milieu. I grew up at Prairie as well. Yeah. Uh, what was it about Kierkegaard that attracted you? Of all the different writers that you could have been latched onto, what was it about yeah. Kierkegaard? I mean, I think there's ways that Kierkegaard actually resonates easily for people who've grown up in an event, uh, evangelical context because evangelicals do have this very like passion as a big like it's a very passionate form of faith right and I think Kierkegaard's his emphasis both on passion and on like really making faith real like like right. really having it be this existential thing I think that yeah. resonates you gotta walk the talk yeah. yeah so that message was 
was definitely, I don't think it's hard for evangelicals to appreciate that in itself. But then, of course, you know, he, like, the way Myron was teaching him as well, like, a lot of us were really hungry for these new ways of thinking about the context we'd grown up in. And, I mean, how Myron uses him um, in terms of apologetics and those kind of evangelistic forms that a lot of us were already, you know, we were already looking for something new, I think, or like new ways to understand that and um, maybe move to new ways of thinking. So it, it was a good, I think it was a good way of being both accessible, but also kind of opening up new vistas of what faith can look like, how it can, yeah, just new ways of thinking. So what did, what were some of the new ways? What did you start to, what has changed since you've been with Soren? I mean, I was pretty young when I started reading him. So it's hard to know exactly, like I've had so many, I feel like I've had so many changes in my life since that time that it's hard to pin it directly to him. I'm trying, that's a good question. I think one thing, and this is something that I'm, that's kind of still going forward into my dissertation, I guess just kind of the way that, like there's so much complexity in his writing um, and sort of acknowledging philosophical complexities I've always been intrigued by the idea of the self and how that's kind of constructed um, philosophically. And so that's one thing that I found really appealing in him is the way, and this is kind of where I'm going with my dissertation, how he talks about the self as being both uh, like temporal and eternal, infinite and finite, and those kind of contradictions that make up the self. And I think that really resonated for me as an angsty person in my 20s that it was like yeah I'm feeling these tensions like you underlining it going that's me he's speaking about me yeah exactly yeah you know and even the way he talks about despair and anxiety like those were things it kind of gave Christian categories Christian philosophical categories to kind of start thinking through these experiences that I was having or like how I was feeling um so I think that was really valuable for me what is the connection to the incarnation because this is also the other part of your Doctorate. Yeah, yeah. So the incarnation I see is really central to Kierkegaard's thought because of the paradox of it. And I love how he just tenaciously holds on to the paradox of the incarnation of um, Jesus Christ, not just as divine and human, but as that also means like time and eternity sort of coming in this great paradox. Yeah. And so in my dissertation, I'm kind of hoping to talk about how we mirror some of those contradictions in our existence that's not a bad thing like that's a good thing that that is central to who Jesus Christ is and then also that we can kind of live out in our own lives it's kind of like the the connection to a or the opposition to apologetic like the apologetics world says oh when you encounter a mystery here's a here's an answer to this mystery or here's how I can answer your mystery whereas Kierkegaard and the the incarnation is here is a mystery. It is real and you will never solve it. So now yeah. what are you going to do about it? And and so that is his image also of the self, I guess. But that's kind of where I'm trying to go with this. I mean, we'll see. We'll see where I end up. But, but I it's feel a like... self that resists like easy, a, easy definition, easy kind exactly. of. Exactly. Because once you've defined a thing, you can control it, I guess. You yeah. can use yeah. it. Yeah. Right. It becomes yeah. a, a tool you can use. And he's like, well, the self, that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's real, but you can't wrap it up in a neat little bow and yeah. you can never get get to the bottom of it you can never tell the whole story I guess 
So how do we live in this world where the most important things in this world cannot be defined and cannot be explained? And where contradiction is so important. <laughs> yeah, right. Is there other people, are there other conversation partners in your dissertation? Or is it mostly just Kierkegaard? Or are you bringing in other voices? Yeah, it's mostly just him. And then, of course, lots of different um, Kierkegaard scholars, including right. yourself. I was so excited when I read your book a few years ago, which is I think how we first connected, I wrote you a little email and was like, I love your book. And, and, and you realized that I, that I knew Myron from back in the day yeah, as well. So. Yeah, yeah. How does, how does the, this is going off piece a little bit, but how does the nationalism, my work on nationalism, how does that, has that informed your work on the self and on, on, on incarnation? I think it will. I, I, okay. the thing I was most excited about with your book was how you talk about the moment and contemporaneity and some of that, because that's very tied in. I think it will have the nationalism thing will come in at some point as well, I think. Well, this is probably going to lead to the to the main meat of this conversation, which was your uh, your use of Kierkegaard and then Hannah Arendt to talk about the individual being swept up in the crowd. Like, how does an individual resist being swept up in in the crowd in the mass sentiment? Which I suppose nationalism is probably the poster child for mass sentiment the crowds. So I guess this is where your interests and my interests are probably going to meet at this point, right? Listen, let's let's talk about this. So the the title. Thinking Outside the Crowd, Kierkegaardian and Arendtian Resources for Resistance. All right, Kierkegaard, we talked about. Yeah. Hannah Arendt, who is she? Yeah, so Hannah Arendt, I, I love her work. She's such a great thinker. So she was German, Jewish, so born in Germany, I think, 1909, something like that. Um, and so grew, grew up in Germany and did her academic work there. She actually, she studied under Heidegger and Jaspers. Um, so she she was kind of in the thick of the German academic scene. She started doing some research. I think this was after her dissertation and everything. And she started doing some research on anti-Semitism in Germany. And that raised some red flags. And so she ended up... When was this in, in history? Oh, I think it was sort of late 1930s. Okay. Like, oh, wow. Yeah, okay. Right. Yeah. So she ended up playing... Germany um, and then she was in France for a while doing some um, she she kind of decided at that point to really to kind of identify more as Jewish not that she hadn't before but to really take on um, being active in working for kind of the Jewish cause as she called it so she was doing work in France um, kind of helping people escape and such and then she and her husband ended up going to New York, I think in 1941, they were able to get to New York. And then she she was there after that, um, ever since. She was writing and teaching and so on in New York. Um, most of her writing is from the 1950s and 60s. I think she became more kind of popularly known when she covered the trial of Adolf Eichmann. Um, I think that was 1961. She wrote about it. I think it was published in the New Yorker in a series of installments. Um, it's now a book called Eichmann in Jerusalem, and it's well worth reading. Um, so Adolf Eichmann was, um, he was a Nazi war criminal who, I think they went to Argentina, he, he'd fled to Argentina, but they went and got him and put him on trial in Israel. And it was kind of a very publicized trial at that time. And so she covered it. She got a lot of negative feedback from her 
analysis of that. So the main kind of reasons for that, we'll talk about this, but she used, uh, she kind of became known for this phrase, the banality of evil, evil as banal. And so we'll talk about that, but she got criticism for that as well as she criticized the Jewish leaders um, in a lot of countries who had kind of contributed or participated in the Holocaust by kind of making deals. And she got a lot of negative feedback from the Jewish community for that. And then also she was kind of critical of the way that the trial was conducted. So anyways, she was she's she's just such an honest thinker. That's what I love about her. She just says what she sees. Um, but that was not very popular. So was it the? I mean, because Jaspers was her PhD supervisor, I think, mm-hmm. and Jaspers is one of Kierkegaard's earliest translators into German, wasn't he? Yeah, I think so. And or or earliest students. I mean, I don't know if yeah. he translated, but was is there a Hannah Arendt Kierkegaard connection? Is that what drew you to her? What was it that? Well, I actually um, so I first got into Hannah Arendt because I did my master's at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. And uh, Ron Kuypers, he had a whole class on Hannah Arendt that I okay. took my first semester there, and I just fell in love with her. And it was, it was such a great class, and I loved her writing. But I, as soon as I started reading her, I was like, this feels so Kierkegaardian, like the way that she's talking, right. like just singularity or the individual. And like, there must be something here that she's drawing on Kierkegaard. There isn't a ton of research on that. Um, right. And she's not, since that time, she's not name dropping him. She's not like mentioning No, she's not. Not at all. Uh, so as I was researching, like she had this little thing she wrote on Kierkegaard. It's about two and a half pages. It's not very long. It's just kind of in a collection of essays. But um, she does talk about him. And I think she started reading him when she was like 14 or something. Like she was just this, you know, precocious precocious young thing she was reading philosophy in her teens and she had access to a library and you know oh I just sort of I saw Kierkegaard there on the shelf started reading so it was in her in her background she who said and then I discovered Kierkegaard and everything fell into place yes exactly yeah which sums up a lot of people's experience actually yeah yeah okay so it is interesting because she doesn't really talk about him explicitly a lot but it's just there always kind of a a, a electric current running throughout exactly but i mean we i i don't want to say that hannah arendt is just repeating kierkegaard i mean hannah arendt herself her book on violence is the only one i've read but that's a life-changing book really yeah i really i really love that book but i interestingly i haven't like gone into to looking at everything she's ever done as but uh so so your paper i'm going to read it out this paper argues you say that kierkegaard and arendt identify the subjectivity of the ethical agent as the most fundamental site of resistance. And you're arguing that both Kierkegaard and Hannah Arendt are resisting dehumanizing evil in all its forms. Can you talk us through that? What, 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 is, what is being resisted here? And then how does the subjectivity of the ethical agent resist that? So I'm kind of working with Kierkegaard I'm working with his critique of his own time, which is from his book, Two Ages. It's sometimes published um, just half of it as this present age. It's, it's a good little read. So he's, he's writing in mid 19th century Denmark, Denmark's golden age. And he's writing about what he sees as like 
the biggest problem of his time, which is he calls his time an age of publicity where nothing ever happens, but still there's instant publicity. <laughs> and so, wow. And he's, he sees the biggest problem. Hey, as, no, 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 no. Repeat that phrase again. Karen. Yes, That's too sure. good. Tell me again. What was that? Nothing ever happens, but still there's instant publicity. And this guy was writing in the mid 19th century Denmark and he wasn't mm -hmm. writing in the current age exactly. on Twitter. And uh, yes. yeah, amazing. Okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. So this is the, and, and this was a problem for him. Why? Why was this a problem for his present age? He's kind of contrasting it with an earlier age, the age of, of action or revolution. Um, and he sees his present age as an age of reflection, which sounds like a good thing, like, you know, oh, reflection. But he's using it in a really negative sense of never coming to action um, or decision, kind of this procrastination or evasion. Um, he has this great, I mean, he's such a descriptive writer. Um, In England, we'd say all talk, no trouser. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And he actually, he has this great line where he talks about the whole age as a committee. <laughs> Basically our whole, like we've just become one big committee, which I think is great. And so he talks a lot about the public. And that's kind of what I was working with is this idea of the public, because he sees that as so problematic because the public is no one, and yet so much is done in the name of the public. There's no kind of form of accountability for that. Um, so he says, one may speak to a whole nation in the name of the public, and yet the public is less than one ever so insignificant human being. So there's no, there's no accountability with that. And a person can be like, oh, yes, I'm part of the, you know, I'm part of this group. But what is that group? It's, it's always changing. There's no there's nothing you can pin it down to. And this is a dehumanizing, like this, you, yeah. you talked about it as a dehumanizing force. So what happens to a, a human person when they join the public then? I think for him, he would see it as a temptation because you might not even realize yourself that you're kind of a nobody in that system or that, yeah. that nobody is anybody, but you might still... I don't know, I've been kind of thinking of it in contemporary terms and how it's easy for us to think sometimes that we are doing good because we have the right opinions or something. You don't necessarily, you haven't necessarily thought it through yourself. You're just kind of like jumping on a bandwagon. Yeah, okay. So saying the right, like, I'm good because I can say these words in the right order. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I can give exactly. the correct answer to whatever trouble is exactly. currently uh exciting my group i can give yeah. the right answer so i'm okay yeah like sort of like posting a black square on instagram or something and right for black lives matter like and i'm not saying that there's no value in you know openly saying what you believe or something but yeah. i think for kierkegaard the temptation or the danger would be if there's no inner work around yeah. that where you're actually like yeah. what actually is my participation in this that's the perform. Um, that's when people accuse you of like performative allyship, yeah. or where you're like, well, yeah. you're just you're just doing the the easiest, most public thing, but you're not actually doing any of the real work. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And so I think for Kierkegaard, like, it would be sort of identifying yourself in a certain way, but like public opinion can change overnight, and if you're just part of the public 
you know, you haven't done any, any real work of actually thinking about what you believe or actually identifying yourself um, in a certain way. And so he talks also about, you know, the public, the public doing things on principle. And he's like, you can do anything on principle. Um, but what actually are your principles? What are you committed to? You and and from a from a public point of view, what on principle usually just means something like what we all think right now, like what yes, what is popular. Exactly. So yes. the the principle isn't actually on principle; it's just what yes. is popular, what most voices think right now, yes. or are saying. Right. Yeah. And that becomes the principle. And where, what about Hannah Arendt? How does she does she see the public in this way? What's her negative form of human life here? Yeah, she doesn't use the term the public, but she does talk like she's very interested in her work in like she looks back a lot at the Holocaust at Nazi Germany trying to understand how could this happen how did this happen how how did people go along with this um, and also those who didn't go along with it what enabled them to refuse to participate and in doing so she's hoping to find a model for how we can refuse to participate in evil because she's worried she's always worried it will happen again now that it's happened because what is the banality of evil then what is the i mean what is when she said that what was she saying what was she meaning she was looking at eichmann and she was trying to understand she was trying to understand him i think and she came to the conclusion that he was quite ordinary and that, you know, he'd been painted in much of the press as this monster. Like a this... James Bond villain, kind of. Yeah. And right. she's like, he was a bureaucrat who was yeah. like, you know, just like signing papers. Like, he didn't even, I mean, he did, I think he knew what he was doing, but he also, like his, and he used this as his legal defense, you know, I just did what I was told. Right. They told me to do it. I was just following machine. orders. I was yeah. a cog in the machine. And so her response is, yes, you were. You were that, but that's not an excuse for what you did. But instead, she kind of turns it around. Like, in some ways, it could have been anyone. You know, he's not this kind of master criminal, this mastermind or anything. He is just a totally ordinary person who was in this job position. And so the banality of evil she was like, it's not this kind of monster, monstrous crime that only these people who have sold their soul to the devil are capable of. It's actually something anyone is capable of. And that should be, um, she calls it, I think his, his terrifying, he was terrifyingly normal because it, it, it shows that any of us really could be capable of such horrible crimes right um, because yeah. she's not saying the evil was banal she doesn't think the holocaust was banal she's saying that no. she's saying that like this great evil was done by people by ordinary who were people. who would have bored you to tears if you met them at a party exactly and they were yeah. done by normal people who were just part of the crowd right they were just doing what everyone else was was doing so what's the solution then do, do you said that kierkegaard and uh, have surprisingly similar analysis and solutions to both to these problems i see them both as as seeing the the fundamental resistance as coming from my own choice my own like developing my own self i guess to be someone who can resist so very much on that 
personal individual level. So for Kierkegaard, as you know, the idea of the individual is so important to him uh, and the individual before God, that very personal God relationship that you can't experience at second hand, that, that it is this one-to-one relationship with God. It's not mediated through your through any group that you might have been born into or that you're affiliated with. Yeah. So, so you don't yeah. relate primarily to God as a German or a Lutheran or an evangelical. Exactly. Exactly. You relate primarily to God as Carolyn and yeah. Stephen, right? Yeah. The ethical kind of accountability or responsibility that comes with that okay, idea. This is, this is what I was going to ask. Where does the, yeah. you, refer, you refer to the individual as an ethical agent. Yeah. So what is so ethical about relating to God as a, as a person as opposed to a, a public? I kind of use um, his treatment of fear and trembling, which is one of his most famous works. He goes through the story of Abraham and Isaac, Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac, kind of the horror of that story that he invites us to look at. The horror is that even Abraham can't make sense of what is happening from any kind of universal ethical framework. He can't appeal to this common sense the sense we all share in common no he can't and so in that way faith is very much it's not only it's not only something that no one else can understand but he himself can't even kind of find categories to make sense of what he's being asked to do so in that way it's it's very individualizing but he still has to act still an agent in the field is this partly what you mean by improvising? You use the word improvising a few times in your essay. You talk about like the the the, the uh, subject or the the individual person is a is an improvising when faced with ethical difficulties. What do you mean by that? I'm kind of drawing from that more on Hannah Arendt again. Okay. A lot of her thoughts she talks about so natality, birth, newness is kind of a big category for her in her work, and in a lot of her work that's kind of a positive thing, like newness is a positive thing but she also um she also uses that category a fair bit to talk about the holocaust as this kind of unprecedented event we're all kind of used to these unprecedented times of COVID-19. yeah right it's the overused um, word the phrase is kind of um, yeah. but yeah she used it to talk about the holocaust some scholars have also pushed back on that in that it might be a bit of historical blindness on her part to not kind of see other precursors to that in other cultures and other countries where that was going on but regardless she's she sees it as this um, unprecedented event but for her that means she's always worried it will happen again so once something has kind of come into our repertoire as a possible way of being or doing in the world the risk is that it will then happen again when she's looking at the Eichmann trial she is seeing how they're trying to judge these crimes which she sees as crimes against humanity in this legal court. And she sees the lawyers, the judges just struggling to find categories within their legal precedents to judge this. And it's kind of impossible because they don't have, they don't have the precedents. And that's kind of how the legal system worked, you know? And so she says they ultimately kind of just had to, like everyone knew this was wrong, right? So they kind of just had to make judgments, not based on legal precedence, but just like, we just know this is wrong. And, you know, but then she takes that same idea and looks at how 
the Germans who didn't participate in the Nazi regime, those who resisted in Germany at that time, she's really interested in how they were capable of resisting. And so she finally decides they didn't have any precedent either for really this situation because it had be- in Germany it had become not only legal, but she says even moral in the sense that it was kind of your civic duty. There was a virtue in participating. They were in this kind of situation where their moral frameworks, their usual, like the usual bourgeois morality didn't work. And so they had to kind of make it up as they go along. And the people that, do. the people that were living according to bourgeois civic morality, the, the, the good, get your head down, be a hard worker, be a patriot, love God, love your country, obey the law. Those are the people doing the worst evil the world has ever seen. So, so the individuals who opted out of that society, what, uh, what was it that she thought would, was it arrogance? What, what, I mean, what? Yeah, she uses the word arrogance. So she yeah. says like they were, they were proud of thought they were above German society. That's how they, that's how they would have been, they would have been seen. And she said they had to trust their own judgment because they couldn't rely on what the public thought was the correct thing to do, or even these kind of, you know, the moral frameworks that they'd grown up with because they weren't working. So yeah, the need to improvise. And so, so you think everybody felt discomfort, but some people quashed, I mean, does Hannah Arendt talk about this? Like, was everybody feeling the moral discomfort, but only a, a select few acted on it and the rest kind of hid that uh, under a veneer of civil duty? Or like, what does she think? Was, was the individuals feeling something that other people weren't feeling? Her read on it, she's actually really troubled by the fact in her reading and her understanding of what was going on in Germany at that time that this wasn't a moral dilemma for right. many people. Right. Yeah. So she was actually really troubled when she looked at it and she felt that it actually wasn't a moral dilemma right. for many people. Yeah. Uh, and so she she kind of she looks at it their morality of many of these people as she compares it to table manners, like just kind of a thing you do, a convention. Yeah. And she thinks that's why it was so easy. She said they they changed overnight, almost like you would change your table manners, like, oh, this is the thing we do now. Okay. Um, and so it does make me think of Kierkegaard's public doing things on principle. Those principles can change overnight. And if you're just part of this crowd that's kind of, oh, this is how we do things now um, and don't have any kind of inner commitment to any principles yourself or any um, kind of self-awareness, um, just kind of go with the flow. So for Kierkegaard, like his, what's his solution to this? We'll talk about Hannah Arendt, but what's Kierkegaard's solution to the problem of the dehumanizing crowd? So for him, he sees, he sees the public as an opportunity for the individual to find their significance in their relationship with God. So he sees the public as this kind of making everyone the same. He calls it leveling, just kind of making everyone the same in an abstract way. So we're all just kind of members of this group. But he says that kind of gives you the opportunity to instead turn to God and find, I guess, kind of who you are in that God relationship. So um, when the crowd rejects you, 
that's when you get to be improvised separately from the crowd, I guess. Yeah. Or even in the face of this temptation to just go along with and become this sort of abstract nobody part of the group. Instead, find the significance that God gives you as a human being in that relationship. From time to time, I'm asked to endorse or promote books. I do not always accept these requests, but this time I am very happy to do all I can to get a copy of Lisa Sharon Harper's book, Fortune, into your hands. If you pre-order Fortune by February the 7th, you will get an audiobook version read by the author for free. This is the book friend of the show Shane Claiborne says is pure fire from beginning to end, and I couldn't agree more. Visit lisasharonharper.com forward slash fortune for all the information you need. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because uh, often our excuse is, oh, I was just a cog in the machine or I was just swept along mm-hmm. with the crowd. And then a Kierkegaard or Hannah Arendt would say, well, why were you a cog in the first place? Like, why? Yeah. Why did you let yourself be in that situation? Exactly. So you always have a choice. And it's never an excuse to say, oh, well, everyone was doing it. <laughs> Interesting. Is this what you mean when you say like that the, uh, a relationship with God makes the, a, a relationship to the world a problematized? Like it makes it, you talk about a, a problematized relationship to the world. Yeah. And I guess I'm thinking there too, again, with Kierkegaard of the story of Abraham. You know, after that happened, it could never be a straightforward like, oh, I follow the rules and that's how I, that's how I can relate to God. Um, that's how I can figure out life. Um, there's always more complexity there that you have to do the work of kind of figuring it out because it isn't just a matter of following rules and you'll do X, Y, and you'll get to Z. Um, it's it's more complex than that. And I think Kierkegaard see that, sees that as so so beautiful, like so difficult, but also that we as, like each of us as an individual human being, that God calls us to that kind of relationship with God that is not just a following a set formula, but that is so particular and so significant. And But where where is the place from? Like, because presumably the discomfort that I might feel when the crowd says blue and I think maybe it's yellow or whatever, the crowd says X and I want to say Y, but presumably that discomfort itself was mediated to me. I, I probably got that from somewhere else, right? Like somebody, somebody else preserved the Sermon on the Mount, for example, so that when my whole church and country is saying, let's kill our enemies and bomb them, I'm saying, yeah, but what about the Sermon on the Mount? So that also came to me from somewhere. Like I didn't generate the Sermon on the Mount from within myself, right? So what what role does inherited wisdom have for the individual as well as for the I mean where where does the individual getting this from I think for both Arendt and Kierkegaard like it would be possible to take their thought to an extreme that is unhealthy perhaps I mean obviously even just the story of fear and trembling it, it is horrifying and there's dangerous ways of reading that as well so I which he noticed I mean he himself thinks that right he doesn't think yeah that Abraham is actually a great model for for life in in the end. He doesn't I mean it's significant he doesn't stop with Abraham, right? Like he 
it's not like he just writes about Abraham for the rest of his life. Like he never mentions Abraham again after, after that one book. Right. But he does take um, that idea that he learned from Abraham, which is being an individual apart from the crowd. I guess there's something there about owning it. Like, I guess I'm thinking about, you sort of get to choose which, which uh, inherited traditions you're going to own or not. Yeah. So it's not that you've generated the traditions. You're, it's not like you've generated the ethical view yourself. It's that you're saying, oh, I am a moral agent. And in this, I get to affirm or deny certain things that are being offered to me. Yeah. And I am going to choose to affirm these things that were handed down to me. And I'm not going to affirm these things. So there is kind of like a, the subjective element is connects with the uh, with the kind of inherited objective element. Yeah, like a kind of an appropriation. Right. I think would be yeah. a good way to talk about it. Yeah. And the problem with the crowd is that when it just kind of says, don't think, don't do any more thinking, we'll do all the thinking for you. Exactly. So when people say, oh, I don't need to decide anymore. My group has done it for me. That's when you've given up that kind of, you've abrogated your own responsibility, I guess. Right? Yeah, exactly. And I guess if we could go back to Erin, like a really big thing for her, what she finally comes down to, because she's so she's so eager to kind of figure out what enabled people to resist um, in Germany, those few who did who did resist, and she comes down to this idea that they had developed a relationship with themselves such that if they participated in this. They knew that they would be a murderer. And she says what it came down to is they couldn't live with a murderer, which was themselves. So this idea of living with yourself, she's like, they couldn't face the rest of their life living with a murderer. So it's this idea of a relationship with yourself. And so, so that's the distinction I see between the two of them with Kierkegaard. It's, it's that relationship with God that develops that subjectivity. And with Hannah Arendt, who's more of a secular thinker, it's developed through this relationship with oneself, this living with yourself. Um, and what are you willing to do knowing that you have to live with yourself the rest of your life? And also for her, just she saw those who resisted as having developed that relationship with themselves such that this was even a, a consideration for them. And, and that is like a deep principle thing to do, right? To, to kind of own your own actions. And yet, Hannah Arendt points out, I think you quote, they said these non-participants were called irresponsible by the majority. But actually all they'd done is they said, I can't live with myself for the rest of my life if I do this. So that's like the most responsible thing you can say. And yet they're told, oh, you've opted out. So you're, you're, you're shaking off the, the responsibilities that come with being a member of our society. So what does, I mean, where does that leave us? Like, what does that kind of, let's take this into the modern age. All right. So where does that leave us now? Like, what is, what were you, were you thinking of any specific events or, or uh, uh, phenomenon? Like, what were you thinking of when you thought, oh, I want to write 10 pages about Hannah Arendt and Kierkegaard as uh, applicable to today? Like, what were you thinking about? For me, this paper started just with, with seeing the connections between the two thinkers, even though they were years apart, being excited about that. But as I continue to think about it and for me I've been involved in the past year in some some advocacy work some I guess resistance work you could call it and so much of what has come up is it, it's been working with institutions Christian institutions 
And it's that it's, it's bureaucracy. It's, it's that no one wants to take responsibility for anything. And I actually, I love, I can't remember if this is in the paper, but Hannah Arendt called, I think it was, she calls bureaucracy the rule of nobody. And for that reason, the least human and most cruel form of rulership. I've been thinking about that. I don't think we talk enough about Christian resistance to bureaucracy, even within our own, you know, churches, denominations, institutions. Like, I think that's such a temptation. No one wants to take responsibility for things. You can always shift it to someone else. And the way that people's, the vulnerable people are often harmed by um, being kind of lost in these systems. Yeah, is okay, I'm trying to think. Is bureaucracy the right word here? I get. I think it is. Right. But I know that there's a lot of people when they hear the word bureaucracy, they immediately think, "Oh, that's just the government. That's what governments do." So we should we should have small government and we should be free and all this. And I and I, but I want to find a way that we also say, actually, we're also talking about your Christian system where a hurting person says, "Please, can I talk to the pastor?" And the pastor says, "This has to go through my." my intern and then you send an email to the intern to info at church.com and then some anonymous person reads your thing and says your request has been put into a holding a, a holding queue and that is also what we're talking about isn't it i think so where yeah. the system nobody owns it in the end like the poor person who needs help doesn't have a name doesn't doesn't have anybody they can approach and then also their request is just kind of got gobbled up in the system and there's no one person that you can ever appeal to and it, is this is that bureaucracy then is that what Hannah Arendt is talking about I, I think that's like a way that we can talk about it in right. our current times yeah a kind of depersonalized systems or and their systems designed to be to be anonymous right like that's kind of the point I think one of the dangers of that is it gives everyone the chance to keep their hands clean. Right. No one has to live with being a murderer. Then if there's a problem, well, I didn't do it. My organization did it. Or, you know, always passing the buck. But even the person at the top, you know, it wasn't me. It was, this is just the system, how it works. Yes. So what? how does the ethic, the improvising ethical agent, how is this a resource? I agree that it is, but go on, tell us. how. It, how is this a resource for our times? How would you use this? to the person who's trying to deal with the, the bureaucracy of their institution. Hannah Arendt always says, you have a choice whether to be, to participate in a system. And she actually, I can't remember which book it is, but she actually talks also the power of withholding your participation from something. Yeah, she says everyone has the choice whether to be that cog in the machine, not using that as an excuse for your actions. But I think also just on a deeper level, I think what both of these thinkers have to offer us. So I'm thinking also of, you know, like systemic evil, like how do we fight those kinds of things, these kind of evils that are greater than any of us individually. And I think for them, they say you have to start with yourself. Um, and it's not that you can't work collectively to fight things. In fact, I think we should work collectively, but that has to be the work of people joining together, each of whom has individually actually thought things through, actually has a personal commitment <laughs> to those principles, that it's not just jumping on a bandwagon or 
or just doing something because it's the popular opinion right now, but actually, yeah, thinking what kind of person do you want to be? What can you live with? And developing that relationship with God and with yourself such that when you're faced with these things, that it is a moral dilemma for you, that it isn't just... Yeah, because you're no longer identifying God with with your group. You're not you're not identifying divine revelation with what we have right now. So you're not saying, well, this is we have for such a time as this, history has led to us right now. So we are God's agents on earth. So we don't have to think about it anymore. Like we don't have to ask God what he thinks because he's made us the most powerful nation or he's given us power in this election or or we have all these people in this room shouting with one voice or whatever it is. So so we don't need to interrogate ourselves being right before God because we've got the group which clearly God has blessed and given his voice to so we don't need to worry anymore so I feel like this kind of resist some of these resources they're almost not so much for the for the victim they're resources for people who might accidentally find themselves the tyrannous majority right this is like a course correction for improvising ethical agents to look at each other and go oh shit have we created the same thing that we resisted are we doing that right now, right? Uh, what do you have any sense what a group looks like? Like, what's the difference if the public or the crowd is a kind of an unhealthy collection of humans? Is there such a thing as a healthy collection of humans? What 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 might a healthy institution look like? I mean, Kierkegaard actually talks about this. He just has kind of a brief comment, but when he's talking about the public, he says, like, he basically says this isn't the same thing. I'm not talking about true community. Or he contrasts the public with true community because he says true community is um, actual people <laughs> um, in relationship with one another. And so his idea of the public is much more this much more abstract group that one kind of belongs to. But that kind of face to face actually being in community with one another, you actually, I think, have more opportunity to hold each other accountable, um, to have that responsibility, that face to face you know, this is what I've done and I have to own it. I mean, that certainly looks to me like a smaller rather than larger types of human groups. It looks like groups that are not so old and ancient that people can't remember why they were there for. (laughs) Like it kind of suggests a a sort of smaller groups of humans constantly renewing their own organizations or something. It's it's not anti-organization. It's not anti-community. That's a really good point. No. Kierkegaard's not saying... Not... Anytime you find humans agreeing about something, that's a problem. Yeah. Uh, every time. And Hannah Arendt. Yeah, she, the same. she's not anti-community, like... is she? No. She's just anti the uh, group sense that has taken over any individual sense of moral responsibility. Do you think, I mean, when you were talking about a group that was like the principles switch between they're one thing the one day and then they switch again, but nobody, it's always the same. It's always the same public, but the but their moral outrage changes, but it's the same public and it's the same feeling of outrage. It's just that it's a bit like uh, 1984, right? Where, where, where they're fighting, they're, they're always fighting a different enemy, but <laughs> it yeah. just changes from day yeah. to day. And I was, I was thinking, my friend uh, was talking to me about the, again, the whole kind of Trump era, the, the Trump moment that we're in, right? With mm-hmm. the evangelicals where mm-hmm. not that long ago, Carolyn, I mean, we're talking well within our lifetime we're talking 10 years ago 15 years ago 20 years ago you know they the 
the kind of moral outrage at um, at the idea that a, a president might have a, had a divorce or something. Right. Yeah. And now those very not the same types of people, but the very same people yeah. that were so morally outraged by presidents who had a divorce are now with tears in their eyes proclaiming that Trump is this guy for them. And 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 it's almost like the, the things that Trump brings to the table, they're not even embarrassed by anymore. It's like they like it. They're like, no, it's good. We need somebody like yeah. this to break up the system and to yeah. And I, I just wonder, is that is that something going on here? Is that like an, an evidence of principles changing? I think so. Yeah. So how do we resist? Like what would what would Hannah Arendt or our character guard do if they found themselves? in those situations do you think what what kind of tools do we have to re resist that it might seem kind of frustrating almost but i think for both of these thinkers it's just it keeps coming back to well who are you and what are you going to do now in this moment because the worry is that if you if it's not grounded in those deeper that deeper subjectivity that you've developed that you do have this risk of replicating those same kinds of systems even if you kind of change the tune a little bit you might end up doing kind of the same thing you know it's, it's and it is like you said like it's these same people who are you know applauding what they had moral outrage about 20 years ago but it's not about okay I, but something has stayed the same so their words have changed but what stayed the same is the same types of people are always in power or the same group is using this kind of moral outrage to get power or something like that. So it's kind of like, all right, there's always this group and they're always using this kind of language and it's always about power. It's just that it's like a mad, did you ever play Mad Libs, you know, where you just change the nouns yeah. and it's just like the nouns change, the targets of their moral outrage change, but there's always moral outrage and it's always directed towards preserving power for the moral in-group against or the christian in-group against the out-group or something like that and i feel like maybe that would be it like if i if i feel those buttons being pressed in me that oh i'm feeling outraged right now that might be my clue that maybe i'm thinking in terms of the dehumanizing crowd rather than the ethical agent right yeah and i mean i think sometimes we are rightly outraged by things but yeah i guess just it's important to think through are you to really turn inward and, and think through things like mm. what am I committed to? What can I affirm or do and still live with myself? And what am I being manipulated here in perhaps? Well, there's something about the, I'm thinking about the, with the Hannah Arendt situation and maybe even today, right? I'm trying to think of the, the kinds of people that get really, excited about stuff and they're the kind of culture warrior to, like they're the kind of ones that like they're right. they're willing to countenance various forms of evil or overlook evil because it means their group is going to succeed or it means that they our group is threatened so so we need to do this and then the the people that the arrogant ones quote unquote that hannah Arendt would say the ones who set themselves apart from that they're like yeah i know that your group I know that my group needs to do that in order to succeed, but I couldn't live with myself if my group succeeded that way. So it's those people who are like, they, they can feel the pressure to let their morality kind of go by the wayside so that the group might thrive. 
and they're deciding I don't that's not the price I'm going to pay for my group to thrive because that's the way the movement is always going towards of like we can explain our actions with reference to this is what our nation needs in order to be great <laughs> to use that to use that phrase but right this is what germany needs in order to be a great germany this is what christianity needs in order to defend itself against the evil liberals or whatever the enemy is and the individual moral individuals like the hannah arents and the kierkegaard are saying uh you just because you've told me what your group needs it thinks it needs to survive you still haven't answered the question whether that's the right thing for me to do or not wow hannah Arendt, she's great uh carolyn before before as we come into land where could people go what what kind of books or, or or hannah Arendt resources would you recommend and what kierkegaard resources would you recommend to people yeah so i i think eichmann in jerusalem was the first book i read by hannah Arendt. Mm -hmm. it's widely available i think it's really quite accessible because it, she did write it for the new yorker okay it's not difficult to read it's it's a really good read. I, any of her books are great. Um, I think the other ones I was drawing from in my paper, I think Responsibility and Judgment was a big one that I was drawing from, which is just a collection of essays. Okay. Uh, again, easy, easy to read and just really useful, I think. Brilliant. And you mentioned your paper. Yeah. I, I'm going to say mm -hmm. it's open source, you said. So it, it's excellent. Yeah. So I'm going to say now, if, if any of the listener wants to send me, send me an email at I was going to say info at 10theology.com, but that's anonymous and bureaucratic. <laughs> Send me an email at stephen at 10theology.com. That's stephen with a PH at 10.com. It will come to me. It won't come to an anonymous messaging source. <laughs> uh, if you ask for a copy of that essay, I will send you an email version of, of uh, Carolyn Mackey's essay, which has all the sources that you've just mentioned as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Carolyn, when you are fully doctored up and you have your doctorate, on incarnation and Kierkegaard and, and personal identity, please come back and continue to this yeah. conversation. But yeah. I, I was so glad to talk with you and thank you for this essay. I, I find yes. it really, thank you. Uh, really, first of all, really easy, like easy to read, but not dumbed yeah. down, right? So this is this is the mark, I think, of lucid writing where it's easy to read and yet yeah, it's you. also intellectually stimulating. So I thank you for this essay. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks, Caroline. Yeah, thank you. Go well on Vancouver Island and go well yes. with the rest of your writing. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Thanks to David Backhouse for the theme tune and to Chris Marchand for editing and all the other music. This show only exists because of support from listeners like you. If you have found something we made to be good or useful, please consider becoming a patron at the Tent Talks Patreon page or leaving a good review on your chosen podcast platform. This really helps. For more information, visit www.tentheology.com. <laughs>